It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Next fire in the fire, Mr. Simpson's other gangs in the government for hiring the combat site. Break it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you were getting down your neck. Reporter, to the crowd, with that low plane, fine then Up for overflow, five minutes, corner, two foot in a loose Secret devil, secret devil, world, in your own See your heart, tell me the surrender in the river with the right You patriotic, patriotic, plan, might, right, might, feel it, it's British life It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it And I feel fine Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. In the dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Yes, indeed, Dr. Bones is here on the air in the dark heart of the city. Although it's pretty bright out today. <laughs> what do you have to say? I'm over here. I was researching for my, my section that will be at the end of the show. That's right. You have fermented some, food. That's right. A lot of how-to there, and I think that that is awesome. This is the hour of doom and bloom. Friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a paragon of prescience in a prurient world. Puh, 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 puh. How'd you get through that? <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Well, I don't know either, honestly, and I'm not sure I actually do get through you it. You don't even remember if you I don't, get through it. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, posts, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff for any disaster on medical preparedness. Absolutely. I'm Nurse Amy. I'm also Amy Alton. I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That is right, and together we are the dynamic duo, the queen and the codger, the courageous couple, and we're here to help the faithful few keep it together, even if everything else falls Falls apart. apart. (laughs) Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with an outrageous otter? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is applied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when the times are tough and everybody's giving you guff, Will you be ready to keep your family healthy if some catastrophe knocks you off the grid? Well, if you don't have the supplies and the education, really, could you survive a calamity, Jane? Oh, <laughs> Get off your posterior. I 
I think yes. that's probably the better tushy. word. You can say yeah. tushy. Okay, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, just might keep it together in times of trouble. It's time to show the world that you've got more sense than a basket of bananas and get the training you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? I can't think of a better place to get that than store.doomandbloom.net, home of Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated and never equaled products. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, make your home, your workplace, school, church safer, and they are designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. I mean it, and you'll agree that our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, check out the testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. And on top of that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us more, most likely. (laughs) So why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? It's easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine DR Bones and Nurse Amy. We also have a Facebook page, One Stop Shopping. And I don't mean shopping. I mean looking. (laughs) Doom and Bloom on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. I have been putting up a video about every five to ten days. Did you know that? I'm very impressed. Yes. Yes. Yes, you have lots Every of... Tuesday I say, honey, what are we going to do for a video? <laughs> if you're a visual learner, you're going to love our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. Yep. And by the way, you can also see our articles and other content in great magazines like Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide. And recently we've had, I think, every issue of Survivor's Edge, we've had something in there. Yes. Hey, stay with me for one last plug, and that is... For our brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Ever wondered what to do with those fish antibiotics everybody says you should have? Well, find out from the first doctor who ever said you should have them. (laughs) That's right. That's me. Infectious disease is nothing to sneeze at. And the stuff that we talk about in our book, I'll tell you, might just save some who otherwise wouldn't survive times of trouble. You have not read a book like this from any other medical professional. I am telling you that this is not stuff you learn at your cert class. I guarantee you won't have a book like this in your survival library. In Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, you'll learn about all sorts of infectious disease, number one, and then how to use antibiotics to treat them, especially to treat them wisely, and all about the individual antibiotics and how to recognize the diseases that each one treats, including dosing, side effects, allergies, pregnancy, and pediatric considerations, and much, much more. We talk about sick rooms, expiration dates, wound care, all sorts of stuff. You've been looking for a book like this, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, for a long time, and you will not regret having it in your survival library. Well, you know, I was going on Amazon just to see what the rank is because it's been number one. And I just did Amazon and the word Altons. Uh-huh. And we may need to get new music. The Altons by the Altons the on Altons Amazon Music. <laughs> Amazon Music. We're going to have to find out what the Altons music is all about. Wow. So there's Isn't a band funny? called the Altons. Well, go figure. <laughs> there is always something going on. Of course, there's some kind of cook or chef called Alton Brown, too. Yes, but we came up first. Is that if, 
I guess maybe the S helped, but we were the first book that showed up. All right. By just doing those two words, Amazon and Alton's. All right. Well, there you go. You have to skip over the music, though. <laughs> now, remember, our books are meant for situations where there isn't a functioning modern medical system. There is. Get to a certified medical professional. What's the matter with you? Hey, so you know what? I asked you just a second ago to consider getting a copy of our antibiotic book, but antibiotics are a double-edged sword. Yes. For years, I've been writing about antibiotics and how important that we think they are as part of your survival medicine cabinet. In survival scenarios, really, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to owe your lives to you because you were wise enough to include them in your medical supplies. They are not cure-alls, though. I often mention that antibiotics don't kill viruses. They're essential for dealing with bacterial infections. But there are some things, like viruses, that they really don't do much for. Besides killing bacteria, which is their main purpose, they kill the bad bacteria, they can also kill good bacteria. Now, you have good bacteria in your body. Most of you know that, uh, especially in your intestinal tract. You actually, you have tens of trillions of bacterial cells that help digest your food. And this good bacteria is so numerous that there are actually more bacterial cells in your body than, well, your cells. Now, if the good bacteria becomes collateral damage in your war against infection, the lack of them can compromise your gut, giving one in three antibiotic users diarrhea and having negative effects on your body's immunity, digestion, and detoxification ability. This pales, of course, as a concern compared to withholding antibiotics and having somebody die of a bacterial infection, but it is actually a pretty big deal. Of course, the usual disclaimer applies. You know, if you notice any significant side effects from antibiotics in times of trouble, contact your medical provider. Now, I mean in times of not trouble. I said in time in normal. You said you said in, time in times of trouble. Oh no! All right. Well, that's me. I just losing brain cells every moment. In times of trouble, contact your no. Wait. Can't contact your, your doctor. Well, th well that's I'm not so true. glad that you are around. Well, that's not true. They might <laughs> have a neighbor either. or they might be a doctor themselves or have a family member that is. That's actually Hopefully true. Hopefully everyone's got access to someone with that knowledge and some good nurses, too. So what do very you do? Important. Yes, good nurses <laughs> are very important. Now, what do you do if you are taking antibiotics and you are killing all that good bacteria I along know. with the bad bacteria and you don't want to get yourself in trouble. You want to restore that good bacteria. I will say one thing. This is great, what you're talking about, probiotics. I don't like the capsules, though. I know you're going to, you only talk about foods, which I love, because that's the natural way to restore. But I'm not so keen on these capsules, these dry capsules that you get in the, uh -huh. I just, you know, there's, I don't feel like there's any regulation or control. Probably and I, not. And I just think that you know, eating good foods, like, again, I love your article and the video you did that's all about foods and, and doing this in a natural way. So, right, well, again, if you guys are going to – are you going to replace your, your good bacteria, uh, listen to Dr. Bones. He's going to give you some good, good advice here. So Amy is talking about probiotics, and, indeed, that's a great way to help replace your body's good bacteria after taking – uh, antibiotics. Yep. A probiotic is a substance that stimulates the growth of microorganisms, especially those with beneficial properties. 
a study published in 2012 in no less than the Journal of the American Medical Association found that taking probiotics can reduce antibiotic-associated diarrhea and other complications. Probiotics are found in food like yogurt. They have live, healthy bacteria in it and other microorganisms that help repopulate the microbes in your intestine. The yogurt label should say live and active cultures. Sour cream also may uh, have some of these live cultures as well. If you prefer to drink your probiotics, you can consider buttermilk that has it, uh, and also kefir, which is a creamy sort of dairy-based drink that's made with healthy bacteria and yeast, and they introduce that into milk, and they get kefir. The fermented product is similar in taste to yogurt, except it's a liquid. Now, if you're one of those folk who isn't treated well by dairy products or other kinds of foods like that, you can consider foods like fresh sauerkraut or something like kimchi. Both come from fermented cabbage and contain probiotics. Another option is fermented pickle relish. You can also drink kombucha, which is a tea that uses a fermentation of sugar by bacteria and yeast to get its probiotics. But and got, I pronounced it kombucha, kombucha, didn't I, in my in your video? video? Yeah, it's kombucha. Well, kombucha. Okay, good to know. <laughs> but to I know. will say one thing about kombucha, which I have purchased and tasted, and it's I like it. It's delicious. But you got to like vinegar. On some of these things, <laughs> you just gotta like vinegar. Vinegar and the kimchi, which is the fermented cabbage sauerkraut-like food, that one is a Korean food, and that's got a lot of chilies. Oh yeah, it's really hot stuff. <laughs> hot stuff, baby. So, and I'm sure if you were actually in Korea and you got the kimchi, um, as an American who's not used to some really spicy, spicy food, oh, there'd be smoke coming out or of your Korean ears. Korean restaurant, <laughs> you'd be like, yowza. <laughs> But, yeah, I'm going to talk about some fermented foods later on that hopefully you can make if there is a grid-down situation. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Now it's And Im- get your gut healthy. Absolutely. Now, it's important to realize that since probiotics have bacteria themselves, their beneficial effect, the bacteria, can also be killed by antibiotics if you're taking them at exactly the same time. You probably should take your meds and your probiotics a few hours apart, and I should should mention that a percentage of those people that do ingest a lot of probiotics may notice side effects such as cramping, bloating, or gas, especially if you're not, uh, if you eat a lot of yogurt and are so lactose be, be to- intolerant. To- tooting your way through the garden. So it's possible. <laughs> now, after a course of antibiotics, high fiber foods may help stimulate the growth of healthy gut bacteria. Foods that contain fiber are not only able to stimulate such growth, but they also reduce the growth of harmful bacteria as well. Consider things like whole grains, nuts, seeds, beans, lentils, berries, broccoli, peas, bananas, even artichokes. And now remember, fiber is great, but too much fiber can interfere with the absorption of antibiotics. Therefore, many suggest temporarily postponing consuming these foods during the antibiotic treatment and focus on including them in your diet after your course of antibiotic therapy is over. Yes, you know, even without probiotics, food, food food-sourced probiotics, you will or you should, if you have a normal intestinal system, get your good bacteria naturally within four weeks. So taking these fermented foods and using the probiotics will speed that up so that your digestive system is healthier faster. Sounds good. Now, you're going to talk about now how to actually produce some of these items, right? 
Uh, off the grid, for example. Yes. All right. Sounds good. I want to talk a little bit today about something Dr. Bones was discussing, which is probiotics. And some of the easiest foods that you can actually make at home are fermented foods. I got some really great information from a website called organicauthority.com. So a lot of what I'm talking about today is from that website. I'll mention another website if I've got a source for something else. But mostly what you're going to be hearing is from, again, organicauthority.com. Fermentation is essentially one of the oldest forms of food preservation. Remember, until just very recently, they didn't have refrigeration. So fermentation was one of the ways that they preserved foods. And of course, a lot of our audience out there, the folks listening, are thinking about a time when they might not have refrigeration. And so what are they going to do when they harvest food or they trade somebody? Let's say you have chickens and you've got eggs. You trade somebody and they give you cabbage or some vegetables. What What are you going to do to keep them good and not spoiled for a longer period of time? Now, there's other reasons to eat fermented foods. They help keep you healthy. And how do they do that? mostly because they maintain your gut flora. There have been so many studies recently about how the bacteria and the flora inside of our gut are controlling a lot of things in our body that people really didn't realize. Metabolism, of course, absorption of foods. They actually feel that some people that, quote, have a faster metabolism really have different cultures of bacteria in their gut versus someone like me who has more of a difficult time losing weight and yet I eat less calories, I know 100% sure, than my really, really thin daughters. Um, They obviously have better gut bacteria than I do. Um, They're not sure why that is, but they're seeing, you know, kind of a relationship between that. But anyway, let's go back to the gut bacteria. There's actually about 400 bacterial species that hang out in your intestines. I know Dr. Bones was talking about that there's actually more bacteria in your gut than your body's cells, which is incredible. Actually, (laughs) mind-blowing. Consuming probiotics that you get from fermented foods helps you maintain that balance of the good bacteria versus bad bacteria, which is what you don't want in your stomach. It messes a whole bunch of things out. So there's a lot of health benefits from eating fermented foods um, besides just keeping your digestive tract in order. You don't have to invest in gallons of expensive kombucha at the food op because you could make some at home. And there's lots of different foods. I'm going to mention uh, 10 of them right now that you can, some of them are a little more difficult than others to do at home without, quote, starters, but it can be done. I've have searched and searched, especially for yogurt. Uh, you know, it's been traditional in, you know, some of these societies that we have uh, now in other countries that they keep starters and they pass them on from generation to generation and mothers to daughters or neighbors to neighbors. And so they're not really faced with the, the situation of, gee, um, the grocery store is just closed. There's been a horrible thing happen where I live, and I 
have neighbors or I have cows and I want to make some yogurt to preserve the milk. So you might be faced with a situation like that. And there are some some options, uh, so we'll discuss them here. But let's talk about sauerkraut first. One of the easiest, easiest things. If I can make it, you guys can make it. I actually learned this when I went to uh, one of the Mother Earth News Fair festivals. And I went to a class. And basically within half an hour, I had a jar of sauerkraut started. So super easy. And we'll talk about that actually after I mention some of the other foods you can make at home, fermented stuff. But, oh, one more thing. We will be at the Mother Earth News Fair next weekend. It's 2019, April 27th and 28th. Joe and I will be there at booth 2300-2400. It's an in-booth near the um, bookstore. So we'll be there. So um, what do you basically need for sauerkraut is cabbage salt, caraway seeds, and a mason jar. Very simple. Again, we're going to go through a recipe for it, but you, you'll be using a jar, and it ferments pretty short, about three to ten days. And since it's a fermented food, you can actually keep it for several months. You can pickle vegetables. There's a lot of pickling recipes that call for vinegar and sugar as a preserving agent, but traditional lacto-fermentation that you depend on for good bacteria in your digestive system is good for um, actually fermenting these vegetables. And it's found naturally, the lactobacillus, on the outside of these vegetables, which is the same reason why you can ferment sauerkraut pretty easily. So you can lacto-ferment by just using the lactobacillus naturally found on the outside of these vegetables with pretty much any vegetable, from carrots to, believe it or not, watermelon radishes. So some cool things you can pickle. I'm actually going to pickle my jalapenos, and I have some lemon cucumbers that are growing, and I will be definitely pickling them. In fact, I need to plant some dill, so I have dill from my garden for that. And I have carrots coming up too, some pretty carrots, so I'll be pickling those if I get enough. We've got to start getting a little more rain around here. Um, kimchi. This is a very ancient. I think you have to have a, a taste for spice to enjoy kimchi. It's really kind of um, an acquired thing. And it's not just liking spicy food because it has its own flavor. But kimchi is a traditional Korean sauerkraut made th- through the same process of what you're doing, lacto-fermentation. But... You can make it really, really spicy or just a little spicy. It just depends on how many chilies you use. So look for a recipe for homemade kimchi. Uh, It might be something good, let's say, on hot dogs or uh, hamburgers. Be delicious there. Yogurt. Again, I did a lot of reading about yogurt before I did this show. And you can make your own yogurt. And you don't necessarily need a yogurt machine, which is a good thing, because again, if we're thinking about not having electricity, you're not going to have probably enough, if you're generating anything, to say run a yogurt machine. (laughs) So look for recipes. You can start with a few tablespoons. Again, we were talking about having a starter of pre-made yogurt, and then you add that to some milk. 
or even soy milk. It doesn't have to be uh, cow milk and wait for the fermentation. So it seems super easy. There is some details that I found on a website, wildfermentation.com forward slash yogurt hyphen by hyphen chili hyphen peppers. Wildfermentation.com forward slash yogurt hyphen cultured hyphen by hyphen chili hyphen peppers. Some really interesting comments from people about how they personally are making yogurt. Not everyone's using a machine. Not everyone's using cow's milk. Uh, Someone had talked about using soy. But one of the really crazy things, someone mentioned using, don't get me wrong, it's I don't know. I've never done this, but using ant eggs, I I don't know what to tell you. But the main thread is talking about using the stems of chili peppers, hopefully that you grow that haven't been washed too much. Because, again, remember, you're trying to use the things off of the outside of vegetables to help you. Kombucha. Now, you really need to acquire a taste for kombucha because it has a very strong vinegar flavor. This is another thing that I buy when I'm at Mother Earth News. There is um, a couple that makes kombucha, and oh my gosh, it is just wonderful. So I usually stock up while I'm there. Uh, I have to keep it in my little cooler and drink it pretty quickly, uh, but it's absolutely delicious. And uh, that's another thing that you kind of need a starter for. So look at um, some of the recipes. Basically, kombucha is made from water, caffeinated black or green tea, sugar, and something called SCOBY, which is just an acronym for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast, which again is called MOTHER. And a lot of people who are uh, into vinegars will understand um, there's a vinegar called Bragg's which actually is um, unpasteurized. It has the starter bacteria for making vinegar. I should say bacteria and yeast, but it has the starter for making vinegar. Um, now, the, for the kombucha, those ingredients are placed in a large jar and basically left to ferment for 7 to 10 days. During this time, the scooby snacks, that's funny, scooby snacks, on the sugar molecules to produce gas and therefore a fizzy, sparkling, fermented drink. Sugar is essential to the kombucha making process, so don't fear dumping it in. You're feeding the culture so it can grow and and do the fermentation process. By the end of the fermentation, most of the sugar has been metabolized by the scooby, therefore reducing the sugar content of your homemade kombucha. So it's not like you're going to end up with, say, like a Coca-Cola sugar syrupy taste. Um, you're really, it's just food, really, for the, the Scooby. So that's really fun. Um, they say you can flavor it. Uh, after the first ferment, the kombucha can be drunk, drank, or you can do a secondary fermentation process, which is de- done to add extra carbonation and flavoring. You can add things like ginger, cinnamon, honey, or berries. And uh, Julie of Cultures for Health, which is a reference in this article 
that I got it from, notes that a second fermentation period allows the flavors to meld and archive a deeper and more complex flavor profile. Kind of sounds like a wine description <laughs> from a connoisseur. Um, and she explains that bottled in an airtight container, the carbon dioxide produced during fermentation will remain, giving the kombucha the fizzy texture it is so often known for. So it's an interesting drink if you can try one. I know they have them at most grocery stores these days. Cheese is something most people don't think of, but that is actually a fermented food also. There are many types of cheeses you can make. Um, there's a recipe um, for goat cheese out there that is so easy. I've made that before. So look up basic fresh goat cheese. Um it, it, I'd say if it's the first time you're making cheese, it's probably one of the easiest things to do. Uh, fermented juice. You can round up some apples and make a batch of fermented apple juice. There's something called fermented ketchup. Uh, you may never have put those words together before, but once you start making your own fermented ketchup, they say you may never go back to the regular stuff. It's really interesting because I just bought a new ketchup. I forget if it's Heinz or Kraft. I can't remember. But it's made with um, actual tomatoes. And it is, I know I say that, ketchup's supposed to be made out of tomatoes. But it's mostly <laughs> tomatoes. And it was a different tasting ketchup than I've ever had before. It was really, really good. I'll have to get the exact name for you. Sourdough bread. They have been making bread for thousands and thousands of years. There are starters out there. You can buy a starter. They have sourdough starters. Look for recipes. Again, print all the stuff out so you have it in printed form in case something happens. You aren't going to have Google. So gather your recipes together or get a good book on fermenting foods. See if you can look at the reviews first and make sure that it actually has simple Steps that don't require electricity. That's the key thing. You want to be able to, if so you have to heat something up, of course you can make a fire. So you'll be able to do that. But if you've got to cool something down to a low temperature and you live like I do in South Florida, that's just not possible. So look for things that are going to match your, you know, prepper lifestyle if that's what you have to do. Now, if you just want to do this now and you've got a kitchen and all that, you know, get a book that has all the fancy stuff. They have yogurt makers, for goodness sakes, that keep it at a perfect temperature and they have timers and all this fancy stuff. Um, you can do that too. But if you don't have electricity, it's not going to be so good. But there are ways to make bread without using the little packets of yeast. It can be done. Uh, there are also, the 10th one we're talking about, is drinking vinegars. You can uh, drink, there are drinking vinegars that aren't as strong as, say, the white vinegar. Or the, you can drink apple cider vinegar, but it's a really, really strong. Um, but you can use these, uh, they can be used as mixers, so that you're not just drinking the vinegar. I know a lot of people mix their uh, apple cider vinegar with, say, orange juice or apple juice just to kind of cut it a little bit. Um, so they can be combined on their own, like I said, or used as mixers. The fermented fruit actually flavors the vinegar. So you can use all kinds of things. There's a recipe here that they referenced called um, 
peach tonic, fermented vinegar, peach tonic. So I thought that was really interesting. Okay, let's talk a little bit more. Back to number one, which was the sauerkraut. It's easy to make. It requires very little special equipment like we talked about. And the results are dependently delicious. All you need to do is combine shredded cabbage with some salt and pack it tightly into a container. A crock if you have one and want to make a lot of sauerkraut, a lot of sauerkraut but a mason jar will do just fine in small batches. This is exactly what we did at the Mother Earth Fair during the little class. The cabbage actually releases its own liquid, so it creates its own brining solution. Because remember, we discussed that vegetables have the lactobacillus on them, so you don't have to add any, quote, starter. And this liquid that the cabbage releases um, helps submerge the cabbage pieces, and so it's not exposed to air. It's in that liquid fermenting. So over days or weeks, the cabbage slowly ferments into the crunchy sour condiment that we know and love is sauerkraut. So how is it fermented? Uh, again, it's using the lacto-fermentation. So that beneficial bacteria that's on the surface of the cabbage forms the fermentation process and breaks down the sugars in the cabbage into lactic acid. And that is a natural preservative that inhibits the growth of all the other bacteria that are that are harmful. You want to add a little salt because you want it to be uh, kind of a, a briny water. It works better for the fermentation, the conversion from the sugars into the lactic acid. Uh, it's been done for thousands of years, and it helps to stabilize seasonal vegetables way beyond their standard shelf life. Again, this is a way to keep food from going bad while you're waiting to eat it. So you don't have to eat, you know, 40 heads of cabbage if you had a big garden. Um, if you have a cellar and you can keep the cabbage, or even if it's during the winter, you can keep the cabbage that's fermented down around 55 degrees. You can keep it for a super long time, they say months and months, but without the cabbage in a cellar, you're going to have to use a refrigerator. Um, and that's okay, you know, for now. But somehow I'm going to have to figure out a way to keep things cold. I, I believe if I go down deep enough that I have at least a decrease in temperature here in South Florida. <laughs> I know you guys are like, move north. I know. So the things that you need, again, we talked about making cabbage. You need cabbage, the salt, some sort of container. We talked about a crock, uh, mason jars. This is just to store it. Um, you're going to need a little bit of salt. When you make it in a crock, you usually place um, some something weighted over the cabbage to pack it down and keep it submerged. So that's really important. When you've got a mason jar, um, we used uh, just a spoon and we just pushed it really hard down to the bottom. Now, I guess some people talk about shredding their cabbage. What we did was we used um, just a knife and we really just cut the cabbage up. And, you know, the cabbage is in layers, so when you cut it, it, it turns into smaller pieces. So you want to kind of chop it up a little bit, and that depends on you. Some people like it thicker. Um, we did kind of thin strips, I'd say maybe 
um, a quarter or a half an inch thick um, so it was sort of shredded but you want to pound it down to the bottom you want to get it in the bottom of the container so that the liquid covers it oh another technique that um, the woman who was teaching the class showed us was to after you cut the cabbage up of course have your hands washed and clean you actually used your hands to sort of squish and squeeze the cabbage and mash the cabbage with your hands, almost like you were kneading bread, uh, and smush it. And when we were doing that, the cabbage was releasing the liquid. So when we put the cabbage into the jars, we already had some liquid to keep the cabbage submerged. So you want to do that. You want to mash it. She said to use your hands. It helped um, it was a better method for squeezing the liquid out and just work it and work it until you got get a, a lot of the liquid out. And then pound it down into the bottom of the jar or the crock. And then uh, we used one piece of cabbage that we kind of shaped to the inside diameter of the mason jar and put that over the mashed down cabbage pieces. So it was sort of like a floating top. Now, you can put things on top of that, uh, marbles, a stone even, something to hold that down. What you want to do is keep the cabbage pieces in the liquid. That's really important. Uh, we didn't cover the mason jar tightly. You would think about like, oh, canning, it's got to be tightened and sealed. No, it's going to be releasing gases, and so you really don't want it to be um, tight. You can you know, put the top on if you want, don't tighten it. But really what they say is just cover it with a clean cloth or a piece of cheesecloth because that's going to allow airflow and prevent other things from getting into the sauerkraut. I think at the beginning I may have mentioned um, three to ten days, yes. Um, but I found when I was making mine, it, it just took longer. I don't know if it was my temperature down here or what, but it took a couple of weeks for, and you can taste the consistency of the crowd to see, is this really what I want to eat, or is this still too crunchy? You know, there's everybody's got their own taste. It's kind of like um, coleslaw. Do you like it sweet? Do you like it mayonnaise? -y? Do you like it vinegar? You know, the, do you like it saltier? Do you like um, carrot pieces in it? You know, everybody's got their own little coleslaw thing going, and I think that kind of happens for sauerkraut too so you'll be tasting it and keeping an eye on it there's really no minimum or maximum fermentation it's not like oh if I eat it in two days it's going to kill me no that's not going to happen so what can go wrong it, again not much you may see bubbles foam or even white quote scum <laughs> on the surface of the sauerkraut but these are all signs of normal healthy fermentation that's okay the white scum can be skimmed off as you see it or before refrigerating the sauerkraut if you get a very active fermentation maybe your cabbage had a lot of that lactobacillus on the outside of it or if your mason jar is very full the the salt in the water and the liquid from that called the brine can sometimes bubble up over the top of the jar I mean, it's just going crazy. <laughs> um, but this is part of the reason why they recommend using a larger mason jar than is really necessary to hold the cabbage. So what we had done 
in the classes, we filled it up about two-thirds so that it didn't overflow with the liquid bubbling up. If it does bubble up, it's nothing to worry about. Just place a plate below the jar to catch the drips and make sure the cabbage continues to be covered by the liquid so that if more liquid comes out of that cabbage, you may have to take some of the cabbage out so or, or try to push it down. Again, you want to keep the cabbage pieces in the water, in the liquid. It's possible you might find mold growing on the surface of the sauerkraut, but don't panic. Mold typically forms only when the cabbage isn't fully submerged. Remember, keep the cabbage in the brine. Or if it's too hot in your kitchen. That's never going to happen if I have air conditioning because that's on all the time. The sauerkraut will still be fine uh, as long as it's in the liquid. Um, What you need to do is take the mold out. And if you don't have enough liquid, take some of the cabbage out. If you can get a little more liquid out of the cabbage by kind of pounding on it, that's great. But you have to keep all the cabbage underneath the water. Otherwise, you're going to have to take some of that cabbage out. If something smells or tastes moldy or unappetizing, trust your senses and toss the batch. There's nothing wrong with starting over. Um, A little bit of cabbage, you wouldn't believe um, how delicious it is and and how it really goes a long way. You're not not going to fill up a plate of cabbage and eat it. It's sort of a side dish. So it won't take too much of this cabbage to actually provide uh, side dishes for the food that you're eating. So that's just a little bit about fermentation. I hope I have piqued your interest and you guys are going to go out and find some awesome recipes You can always um, write to me if you find something interesting. Again, I would love to hear some techniques about how to make yogurt without starter. It is a wonderful thing. And there are yogurt starter websites out there that will send you starters. You know, if you want to get those, you're going to just have to keep it up. You're going to have to keep it going. Pass it on. Give it fresh milk. Let it do its thing. Take some of that. Put it in some more milk. Again, there's, you know, heating and cooling things that you have to do. But keep it going. It's like a bread starter. You're going to have to just feed it and keep it going. And then you'll have it. And maybe you'll be able to share it with neighbors. Now, that's the kind of how-to stuff that we expect from you on this show, buddy. (laughs) That is awesome. Oh, thank you. Hey, you know, when it comes to survival and being prepared, we know the must-have items that immediately come to mind are a complete medical kit and bug-out bag. Our friends at Gold Wealth Management remind us to have our bug-out bank in place as well. Your bug-out bank should contain physical gold and silver along with three months of living expenses and cash. Call Gold Wealth Management to get a free education about investing in gold and silver. At current prices, the gold and silver market are on sale. Make sure you call 866-GLD-SLVR. That's 866-GLD-SLVR or 866-453-7587. You know, on a a sad note, I guess we should mention the tragic burning down of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. It's something that we had visited. Oh, my gosh. It's a place that we had been close to our hearts. Been there a few times. It's irreplaceable, and the whole world watched in horror. 
as a huge blaze engulfed the cathedral, while it's probably the most significant fire in an iconic building in recent memory, only one, though, of hundreds of thousands of fires in public and commercial buildings that are reported every year. Now, these fires can cause major damage, not only monetarily, but also emotionally. In the case of Notre Dame, gosh, it devastated not only the religious folk, but those people that love history. In the case of a warehouse fire or in a local community, there are families that own businesses that would be devastated as well. Now, I wrote an article two years ago on building fires. Now, I I don't mean building fires. I mean on building fires. Oh, so you're not going to build a fire <laughs> you're not gonna to build cook a fire. on? No, you're going a structural fire. A structural. You know what? That is awesome. I wish I had thought of that, <laughs> and I did, but I didn't. And just ask me next time, honey. At that time, I wrote it in response to a hundred-year-old building going up in flames and killing several people. Notre Dame was built eight hundred and fifty years ago with what they say is fifty-two acres of wood. So you can imagine that after. About eight centuries or so, that wood was pretty bone dry. The church was thankfully closed at a time just shortly before the fire started. Otherwise, there would have been, I would think, hundreds of deaths if people had gotten trapped in there. So why am I talking about this? It's important to know how to escape a forest fire, but most of us aren't going to be living in the forest if the you-know-what hits the fan. We're going to be living in a house or apartment building. It could be an abandoned one or it could be the one that we always lived in. Many of us, I'd say, will probably stay in place if things go bad. Right. And we should know a little bit about building fires. I mean... Structural fires. And we should know about building fires. Yes, we should for also, cooking. Also, <laughs> in times of trouble. Yes. Now, the most common cause of fires is pretty much human error, whether it is accidental or it could be not human error. It could be purposeful human action. The most common cause of fire is indeed error, though, and it's related, believe it or not, to cooking, close to 30% in one study. An oven that maybe you absentmindedly leave open or leave on or some grease that ignites, that can quickly cause a raging inferno. Now, you might think that cooking equipment is intuitively pretty easy to handle, but many in these days of fast food are inexper- especially young folk, are inexperienced and can lose control very quickly. You should always keep young kids away from the oven or burners, and businesses should always assure that all employees are competent in handling any equipment that emits any heat or flames and certainly know how to use the fire extinguishers on the wall. Let's talk a little bit about arson. Arson is the deliberate setting of a fire to destroy a building or business or to hurt people, maybe. It's unknown at this point whether arson is the cause of the Notre Dame fire. Interestingly enough, the owner of the scaffolding company where the fire supposedly started says that none of his crew was around at the time the fire supposedly started, nor was there any easy flammable material allowed at the job site. He claims that materials to start a fire like what happened in Notre Dame would have had to have been brought to the scene. How about that? But I'm not here to cast aspersions or cast blame on people or spread theories around, but the disgruntled and ill-intentioned, indeed, are common causes of at least more than 10%, let's say, of all conflagrations, such as what occurred in Paris, and the timing of the blaze, well, I'll admit, may be a little bit suspicious. You may have heard that setting a business on fire is a great way to collect insurance money. Arson is reprehensible, however, for more than one reason— economic loss to neighboring businesses, loss of jobs, and most of all, injuries and death to the innocent as well as to firefighters responding to the scene. 
Vandalism is not a victimless crime. Sprinkler systems and smoke alarms, that is what you should have installed in your place if you're going to decrease the damage caused by either accidental or purposeful action to cause fires. Heating equipment, I guess I should mention something about that. Most public buildings don't have functioning fireplaces, but they do employ boilers and furnaces. Most of these function safely and efficiently when they are properly installed. When they're not properly installed or poorly maintained, however, fires can occur. And sometimes these units are located in areas where residents may carelessly place flammable materials, like let's say old newspapers. A close inspection of your building's basement or wherever the heating unit is located is very important in any safety plan and make sure you clear out the area of stuff that can catch fire. And that's a big issue in New York City that has a lot of older buildings and it's been the site of a lot of winter fires causing multiple casualties. I wrote about one in 2017. I wrote about one in 2015. It is pretty amazing. Now, frayed wiring may be the culprit there. Maybe the culprit in Notre Dame as well. That's also a possibility. Absolutely. As well as inappropriate use of space heaters. We don't have much time left, but there are a few things I want you to know about the nature of fires in buildings. And every year, a lot of people are killed or injured by fires because they don't understand fires. Here's some things that you need to know. One, most people who die in fires don't die because of burns as much as from suffocation. Fire consumes available oxygen that you need to breathe and produces harmful gases and smoke. Inhalation of even a small amount of these can make you disoriented. It can affect your ability to respond appropriately. Even if there is not a lot of smoke, there are poisonous gases that may be invisible and odorless. There are some people who die in bed and appear not to have even woken up at all for the fire. And that's a, most likely a result of toxic inhalation. That doesn't mean the bodies can't have burns on them, but they're not, oftentimes not the cause of death. Two, fire spreads rapidly. A small fire can go out of control in less than a minute if not extinguished rapidly. Theoretically, the Notre Dame fire was going on for a half an hour before anybody noticed it. Many house fires occur at night when people are asleep, and that makes it possible for smoke and flames to engulf an entire building before you're even aware of it. Sometimes rooms can combust all at once. That's a phenomenon known as flashover. Opening hot doors, that can also cause a fire effect called a backdraft, which appears similar to an explosion. It is scary as hell. Now, three, the environment in a fire is likely to be dark, not bright like you might think, because there's going to be black smoke, and that could easily make it impossible to see clearly as well as cause eye irritation. This leads to confusion as to where the best avenues of escape might be can certain and certainly can eliminate your ability to think clearly. For heat from a fire can certainly burn you even if you're in a room that isn't on fire itself. If you breathe in superheated air, that can burn your lung tissue. That is going to be a lot more lethal than burns on your skin. Five, hot air rises. Most people understand this concept, but not the extremes you'd experience in a fire. Air that's just hot at floor level becomes much hotter at eye level. This is why you should stay close to the floor as you're making your way out of a building. And six, fire needs fuel and oxygen to survive and grow. People unwittingly feed fires by keeping all sorts of flammable clutter around the house. I talked about having old newspapers by furnaces yeah. or boilers, things like that. Do not collect garbage, and especially garbage that might be combustible 
and especially do not put it near any heaters or stoves. We'll talk next week a little bit about what to do in a fire. You're going to have to have a plan of action, and that should be made before a fire occurs, and that's going to greatly increase your chances for survival. And we're going to talk about some of the very, very important considerations next time on the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Be safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.